0: So uh, Jimmy just cuts the butt section off the rod, ticks, uh, cuts a little bit of the tip off, and sticks it into the butt section, and then tapes it up, and they start casting this rod, and they were like, "Wow, this this works." So several, you know, and then eventually it broke. So they they ended up f- producing some prototypes, and
1: that was Joseph Rosano talking about the beginning of the modern day Northwest Spay Rod Revolution this is the wet fly swing fly fishing show welcome to the wet fly swing fly fishing show where you discover tips tricks and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today we'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing fly tying and much more hey how's it going everyone thanks for stopping by the fly fishing show today i'm excited to share a uh, second podcast we're launching that should be a huge help if you have an outdoor business and want to improve your online presence Head over to outdoorsonline.co and listen to the new show right now. It's live and and rocking and rolling. And and even if you don't have a business, just plug in this week for the big week. It'd be awesome if you could just go over there and and click listen for a couple minutes. Thank you very much in advance. Joseph Rosano has been part of the development of steelhead fly fishing and tying in the Northwest since 1987. Find out how Joseph was able to connect to uh, some of the great names around, like Sid Glasso, Alec Jackson, Harry Lemire, and find out why he waited until his 50s to start writing about all of his great experiences. We begin uh, it all today, so very happy that I could share this one with you. So without further ado, here's Joseph Rossano. How's it going, Joseph? I'm good. How are you, Dave? Good, good. I'm excited to jump into this. We were just chatting off there a little bit about... Um, some of the past episodes we've had where we've talked about some of the northwest Spay history and you know george cook was on uh recently and chatting about that so we're gonna dig into a little more but but more on the fly tying side of it and, and steelhead flies i guess um but before we jump into all that can you just talk about how you first got into fly fishing and how you kind of came to become a uh, writing about fly fishing
0: oh my god <laughs> so i kind of have to smile when you ask me that question um, so anyhow, I, I grew up, um, you know, uh, in Long, on Long Island and, uh, we had sure relatives that lived up in the Catskills and I used to go and spend, you know, a lot of time on the weekends and in the summers in the Catskills. And eventually, you know, my parents retired to the Catskills.
1: Well, when did you move out? Uh, so when was the move out West?
0: So, you know, the first time I really, um, Went steelhead fishing was that summer, you know, and I, I fished on the North Fork of the Stillaguamish. And interestingly enough, I was sent to what is, you know, a very well known piece of water called uh, Fortson Hole. And uh, I arrived at Fortson, and the first angler I met is, was Charlie Gerhardt. And, uh, you know, Deck talks about Charlie in his books and how Charlie was a big influence. And, uh, you know, I still talk to Charlie to this day, he's a great guy you know and one of the many mentors i ran into over the years of you know being here so yeah that's how that, all yeah, that and what, happened. what yeah.
1: year was that when you ran into charlie
0: that was 1987 that was september late august early september of 1987 charlie was uh fishing oh god a black grub of some of some type and i remember him standing there at the top of the pool and telling me you know where the fish held and, and how to cast them and and, uh, yeah, I mean that, I mean, I'm getting a smile on my face thinking about it now. Cause you know, I haven't thought about it in ages, but that was my first day steelhead fishing and I was fortunate to run into the right kind of guy for first huh. day.
1: There you go. Yeah. There you go. And what, what, uh, what fly were you using that day? Do you remember?
0: I was using a thunder and lightning. Yep. Thunder <laughs> really and lightning. Was, what is
1: a thunder and lightning is a, what, describe that fly.
0: Well, I was using a wing version of a thunder and lightning. I, um, you know, I think I was like a lot of a lot of uh, you know post adolescent New Yorkers who wanted to be Atlantic salmon fishermen, and we were heavily influenced at the time by Lee Wolf, and uh, you know, so the the fly was a reduced version of you know what I would end up getting involved in later, but um, I think it still had uh, a silver tip and uh, uh, golden yellow tag with. Um, uh, golden pheasant crest for the tail, and then um, black floss half of the way, and then black fur the other half of the way with the orange an orange um, hackle uh, up the body. and then a, a, a throat of it's supposed to be blue jay, but in this instance, I know I was using dyed um, blue guinea fowl with um instead of bronze mallard it was uh fox squirrel wing you know Mm -hmm. brown squirrel wing oh yeah yeah
1: yeah perfect so, yeah, I was hoping we could dig into a little bit i mean we're kind- you're right in that that era you know where there's a a transition coming up um in the late eighties and stuff. but can you describe i mean you've you've written some uh, about that can you can you talk about uh, maybe just take us back? I don't know if you wanna think about a the recent article you wrote or if you just want to start off at at the start and tell us some history about how steelhead fly design you know kind of where it came from and 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 how it changed and then and then how that took us to where we are today.
0: Well, you know, my perception of steelhead fly design is shaped by, you know, the things that have come into my life and the people that I've spoken to about it. And you know, I think that every one of us who was um, you know, trying to become uh, a steelhead fisherman and that means, you know, you could go out and be a steelhead fisherman but to try to actually, you know, successfully catch a fish, I think the first thing that any of us were introduced to was Trey Combs' first book. Um, and I don't, I think that was 1977. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and in, in that, you know, in that book, you know, the, 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 there is, um, extensive, um, information about flies, the individual histories of those flies. And most of what I understand about, um, a lot of early steelhead flies comes from that book. I was also very fortunate, like, as you said, that I was here during the transition, you know, a lot of these, um, let's say pioneers of our sport were still alive. Um, and I was, you know, again, just, I don't know. I I, I was in a situation where I worked in an art studio with a lot of, um, celebrity around me. And while I was and remained somewhat reclusive and, um, I don't know, maybe even timid in in uh, approaching people, I was never really afraid to ask questions. I learned how to ask questions. So I was very comfortable going up to these, you know these legends and asking them questions very early after I moved here. I started working at Patrick's fly shop and Patrick's fly shop is the oldest, um, fly shop, I believe north of San Francisco on the West coast. Wow! And, you know, so I had guys like Bob Strobel coming in and having lunch with me on Friday afternoon. And I, I, um, you know, ran into goodness gracious, all sorts of people. Um, Ralph yeah. wall, Dick Vandermark, Harry Lemire, um, you know, uh, Jack DeYoung, um, and, and then uh, people who I wasn't even aware of, you know, Cliff Barker. And um, at the same time, Jim LeMert, who ran the shop, was a member of the Washington Fly Club. And he and Bob Graham asked me if I wanted to join. So I said, sure, I wanted to learn how to catch fish. And, you know, we were, that was at a time when a lot of information was transmitted through clubs in this way. So I joined And I met Ralph Wall and I met some other um, some other old time, uh, you know, Northwest Washington steelhead fishermen. Um, Oh, in particular, uh, uh, Frank Hedrick, who I think was the, you know, the inventor of the Hellcat and some of the Siligwamish patterns, Mm -hmm. you know, and and over the years, um, I've fortunately developed friendships with you know, Ken McLeod Jr. and um, all sorts of, you know, Northwest luminaries. And um, I get a big smile on my face when I see them. Um, and all of our, you know, the, the vast majority of these, these friendships are sort of based out of uh, a translation of an oral history. And, and um, so when I think about fly patterns, to get back to your original question, mm-hmm. and I think about the history, it's 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 shaped by what I've read in the few books that exist um, about steelhead fly fishing. And I think, oh, Fan Fleet, Steelhead on a Fly, is a, was, it was a great resource. Um, you know, Trey Combs' second book, Trey Combs' first book are great resources.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you had all these people, and this is in the – late 80s when you're running and you're working at um at uh, patrick's fly shop and you're you're connecting so when did you start so you got all this oral history from these people you're developing when did you write your first fly fishing um article or, or or anything in fly fishing
0: so so the first article i ever wrote that was published was um so i was uh the other guy that that i didn't mention was alec jackson yeah. And, um, you know, Alec is one of my closest friends. Um, and in, and Alec, uh, so the, to answer your question, I am a, I'm an artist. I have a degree in art. Um, you know, I've worked for a number of different people I have, a and, and run, you know, their studios and I have, uh, my own art career and I show things around the world. And I had this very traditional perspective about understanding your craft. And, you know, you have to learn certain things before you, you know, go on to make your own work. And that's a very traditional perspective. And, you know, in the 80s, a lot of that convention was being challenged in the art world. It was also being challenged in the real world, right? You know, you can have a basic understanding and go off and create your own your own thing. And What was happening here at the same time is, as I was working at Patrick's, the Northwest Atlantic Salmon Fly Guild was starting. And there were people in there that were challenging that. So I felt, you know, that I was around all of these people that had so much knowledge that I didn't have enough to actually say anything. (laughs) And I figured, well, you know, after I've been doing this for 30 or 40 years, maybe I'll, you know, start writing some things because I will have enough to say about, you know, real experience that'll be worth listening to. And so my first article was something I wrote about 3 or 4 years ago about um Alex passing. And that was the first thing I'd written that was published. I'd written I was the editor of um you know, the co-editor with uh, John Oliverus and Alec Jackson of the um of the uh, Washington Steelhead Flyfishers newsletter and we, you know, published you know numerous things that went with mm-hmm. you know to that group of people that was but that's yeah this is the first time i've done that and
1: w- what was the Alec jackson uh where was that published
0: and that was in fly tires journal yeah fly tire and fly fishing journal
1: or fly fishing and fly tying journal or yeah yeah, yeah. FT, ftj yeah. yeah the yeah ftj <laughs> uh craig who's the who i've been working with right. uh, a little bit yeah so um, yeah, yeah, that's cool. So, and then it takes us to, I think, uh, you know, in the article, can you talk about some of the other ones that you've written for them, have, or have you you've written a few over the year, last few years?
0: Yeah, I've written a number of things for them. I wrote this large piece about the Skagit. I wrote a piece about this project that I'm doing called School, which is a project to create awareness about salmon and steelhead um, disappearing across mm-hmm. the globe, and it's an international. Um, uh, it, crowdsourced art piece, and you know you can find out. I think you can go to www.thesalmonschool to find out more about that and how to be involved. Um, so I wrote a piece about that, and then I've written. Um, I just recently wrote a piece for Swing, Swing the Fly oh, magazine. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, and I have another piece coming out for them. Oh, cool. I have. Yeah, I have another piece that I'm working on about. Um, you know, three great fly tires, Deck Hogan, Ed, I mean, Deck Hogan, um, Marty Howard, and Greg Hunt. Um, and then uh, that'll, that'll be out in the summer issue of FTJ. And then I have um, a piece that I'm doing about uh, Mark Ariner and Jonas Clark, his son, which is the Spinoza Rod Company. And that'll be coming out in um, Swing the Fly sometime later in the year. And then I have I have some other things that I'm working on. I'm doing a, I'm working on a photo essay for uh, the Flyfish Journal, and that you know the, the release date of that is probably a year and a half off because it's, it's it's a it's yeah. a, a an exhaustive project that'll
1: this is cool. This have is cool
0: a book associated with it.
1: Yeah, and, and this is all started in the last basically you said three years, right? This is when you first got your first thing published. I mean. It's pretty, uh, pretty cool to hear what, what got you, what stirred you three years ago to, and, and now it sounds like you're super active. You get something out there and, you know, why are you digging into this? I'm not sure of your age, but, um, seems like, you know, I'm 50,
0: yeah. So, so I'm 57 uh-huh. and, um, why I, <sighs> the reason I'm doing this is because I've been encouraged by friends of mine who have been around me the entire time. Listen to me talk about, you know, fishing and fish and, um, you know, the resource. And, um, I've just, you know, my entire career, I've been encouraged, you know, at some point, Joe, you need to write about this stuff. And, and I would say that, uh, you know, I really have to attribute this to, um, As an artist, I make things and they go out into the world all the time. It's basically like writing an article. I've had several books written about my work. I've written things that are in those books, but I never wrote anything about fly fishing. And um, I realized that a few years ago we were getting ready to open this gadget again. Much of my experience as an angler is connected to Northwest Washington, Sox, Gadget, Still, Guamish. And, you know, in the... Early days, the development of, of uh, what was going on and what has become so um, commonplace in CLH fly fishing was happening within a group of young guys of which I was a part. And I never did; I never became involved in the industry. I um, I was sort of maybe on the historical or literary side, standing by watching, you know. Um, and at some point, um, I just decided, well, you know, this I'm not going to be here forever. And um, I have some interesting things to say. And I started to show them to Deck and to Topher Brown. And, um, and they said, yeah, you should definitely um, talk to a few other people. And then um, and Craig contacted me and said, would you, you know, let me publish this, do mm-hmm. a little editing to it? And I said, sure. And then once I did that, I was like, well, OK. Let me, let me see if he'd be interested in other things. And he was. Mm-hmm. and um he's been a great mentor and you know so has has deck you know deck has edited some of the things he's he's given me time um that uh, i'm I'm truly grateful for and uh so and and as has topher brown so um that's that's sort of how my, my life has gone too is i've i've asked these people um and regardless of what aspect it is of fly fishing or art making and and um I get a response that leads to, you know, these sorts of things.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Craig has been, uh, I haven't worked with him for a long time, but yeah, I could see the mentorship. He's definitely a really a good guy to talk to. And he's, he, I think he's good at his craft, you know, as, as the editor there, um, mm-hmm. it seems like he's doing a really good job and this is how we connected, right? I mean, I saw, right. I saw you and we were chatting, I've been chatting with him about stuff and he said, you know, you should talk to Joseph and. And, yeah, you're you're right in the wheelhouse with, you know, obviously with the Wet Fly Swing podcast, we've covered every all sorts of topics, not just steelhead. But, you know, there are a lot of steelheaders that listen to this show. And so so I do want to dig into get back to the history. You know, can you break down okay. maybe just, um, I don't know, wherever you want to start, go back wherever in history. I mean, I guess for me, I, I think of, you know, for me, you know, I think of my start as 80s, right? And I remember that period, the early 80s. Uh, you know, it was hair wings and it was, you know, it was swinging flies on it it really all this other stuff that happened in the nineties and later was such a big shift, but yeah, start wherever you want to start back in the past and then bring us up to today.
0: So I graduated from college and I was getting ready to, uh, drive and I was driving from, from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. What was that? Was that 80?
1: Was that like 1980?
0: That was 1987. So I was driving from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to, um, Stanwood Washington, which is you know equidistant between well where I was going in Stanwood Washington is on the crest between the Skagit River and the Stillaguamish. What, what kind
1: of car were you driving?
0: I was driving a nineteen eighty four Volkswagen rabbit Wolfsburg Edition
1: wow you had a you had a, a, almost a brand new car that's pretty awesome yeah I oh.
0: I had made money the previous few summers and I purchased I purchased the car brand new for $6400. <laughs> amazing.
1: Amazing. How long know, did right? how long did you have that thing?
0: Oh god. Um I think I gave it away to um someone that was helping us at the house in 1998 99. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so but anyhow we we're getting I will try not to get sidetracked, but yeah. So, so I, I was driving out here at the time and I stopped at my uh, then girlfriend's house in Greeley, Colorado. And I had a copy of uh, Kaufman's Dreamborn. And a lot of the fly tying I did, um, you know, at the time was I would just open up the, the magazine and, and um, or the, the catalog and I'd figure out what materials they were using and then I would just tie the fly. So I, I knew I was going to steelhead country. Um, I'd had some Atlantic salmon experience, and, and I um, decided, well, I'll tie some of these flies. And I did, tied them. Actually, I remember tying all those chenille bodies with wool at the time, and they were all, you know, your traditional flies, like um, Skycomer Sunrise and Skycomer Sunset. If you have 15, you know, historic steelhead flies, wet flies, you know, high-wing flies made with, you know— Either goat or bucktail or um, calf hair. That, that's what I tied. And um, I came out here and, and uh, I went to school and I fished and then was hired. And then winter came. And I found out that's when people were doing even more steelhead fishing locally. Hmm. And I was not prepared to stand in that cold water with my flyweight waders. You know, the stuff I would have worn fishing in the Catskills or fishing in Montana. And uh, and at the same time, um, Jim LeMert was dating uh, the manager of the artist that I was working for. And he says, Joe, why don't you come down and, and work with me on Friday? Because I know you have Friday off or Saturday. He goes, I, I need a break. So I, I came down to the shop. And this was um, in, let's say, March 1988. And I, went to, I started working at Jim's. Um, one day a week and then eventually two days a week. And then um, I was asked, you know, if I would be interested in attending uh, the a meeting of this new group that was forming. It was called the Atlantic Salmonfly Dressers Guild. And I said, sure. So I um I showed up, oh, I can't remember where they were meeting, somewhere the Ashford Center or something like that in, in Bellevue. And again, this is spring of 1988 and at the same time you know i'm in these meetings this this guy was coming in and having having uh lunch with me on fridays and i would you know tie flies and he would talk to me about steelhead fishing and you know and and all i knew is his name was bob i didn't know anything about him jimmy walks in one day and he just stops talking Says, hi, Bob. He stops talking. Bob's telling me about how to fish, all of this stuff about steelhead fishing. And uh, so Jimmy, uh, so Bob gets up and leaves. He goes, oh, well, I'll see you in two weeks because he did a rotation through places that he was inspecting. But well, it was Bob Strobel, who was a, um, you know, famous Skagit steelhead fisherman. He started the, um, the Washington Steelhead fly fishers, which you know included Harry Lemire and Bob Strobel, I mean Harry Lemire and Sid Glasso yeah. and Wes Drain and this little luminaries go on. And so I'm getting this like tutorial from Bob about how to think about flies. You know, he was talking to me about motion. He was talking about how the fly wanted to fish. And uh, then I went to the guild meeting and... Westrain was there and Pat Crane was there and some of these great Northwest steelhead fly tires were there and Steve Gobin was there and you know a guy that probably gets forgotten in a lot of this was Kevin Perkins who is maybe one of the most influential fly tires and creative fly tires at the time and he was there and that was it you know these guys uh, uh, took me under their wing Um, you know I speak to Steve weekly Uh, he's one of my closest friends And, you know, so I, uh, you know, Greg Hunt was there and we've, we've maintained a 30 year friendship. And the interesting thing is, you know, it was really about art in the sense that how do you take, how do you take the materials? How do you take the history of steelhead fly tying and the history of Atlantic salmon fly tying and meld them into something that is new and Unique and productive.
1: Is it the Northwest Atlantic Fly Guild, or what was the the title? It
0: was it was an it was the Northwest Atlantic Salmon Fly Dressers Guild.
1: Dressers Guild, and, so, yeah.
0: And then it and then we formalized it late in 1989 and made it the Northwest Atlantic Salmon Fly Guild. Well, if you look in Ken Helby's book, uh, which is a you know an Amato publication. Um, and I think that's 94, it came out in 94 there are flies in there by me by Greg Hunt, by Steve Gobin by um, a number of guild members and um, things that came out of that and then being connected to what was happening on the Skagit for me were flies like the dependable and you know you every once in a while you see that fly reference or you see it in other books and the idea was while Sid Glasso was out on the peninsula developing flies that you know he felt confident in, and you know this this part of the conversation can I can only go forward by saying to me, the most important fly is a fly called confidence. it doesn't really matter what it is, you know and and that's what denotes an individual fly tire style, those things that make him confident. so um you know you see people who tend to like their throats heavier or they tend to like their wings heavier or they tend to like their bodies tapered. And, and you know, the, you open up their fly box and you see this played out, you know, in all of their flies. It becomes this thing that's consistent in their aesthetic. It also informs, to a certain extent, the kind of water they like to fish, right? You know, because the bushier flies maybe are more successful in faster water where they keep their shape, things like that. So what was happening at the meeting was the um what was happening at the guild was there was a transition from tra- traditional wing flies and a desire, you know, hairwing steelhead flyers, coupled with a you know a desire to learn how to tie beautiful Atlantic salmon flies, presentation quality Atlantic salmon flies. And um the natural step in all of this is okay. If all you're doing is tying, uh, a classic salmon fly to go on the wall, um, it's going to look stagnant. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to fish it. Well, the great thing was, you know, Greg Hunt, who's incredible Atlantic salmon fly tire, Steve Goldman, incredible Atlantic salmon fly tire, you know, all of these guys, um, took them fishing and And the things that came out of the conversation right? well, I fished this fly and Yes, you can make the head smaller if you tie it in this way, but we're having these problems when we cast it. So what was happening was this this assimilation of techniques designed to make really refined and um, clean, I think that's the best word I can use, um, um, salmon and salmon flies immediately translated into the things that we were making using for for a steelhead
1: and you're fishing those flies i mean is that the those flies because i think back at that time and i remember pete some people that were tying those atlantic salmon flies and remember thinking like oh man they're amazing but there's no way i'm sitting down for two hours behind the vise to tie one fly you know what i mean it was like i want to i want to <laughs> yeah. get out there and fish so <laughs> so are were these guys sitting down two hours tying this stuff and then fishing those two hour flies or what, what was that like
0: right so so when we formalized the Guild in terms of coming up with bylaws and all that stuff, it was, it was perpetuated by the question, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to just tie Atlantic salmon flies? Or are we trying to promote the tying or the elevation of flies for anadromous fish? And that was the sort of direction that we went in, this merger of the two. And, uh, you know, so, the, so to answer your question, a portion of the membership was absolutely tying flies that took two or more hours for the average person to tie. Yeah. But they were tying them much quicker than that. They were, you know, not using some of the tricks in order to make sure they stayed on the hook and then fishing those flies. Yeah, Steve, Steve Golban, and Greg Hunt and John Oshuski, in particular, you know, spent considerable time filling their boxes with, you know. With patterns, um, that you know, you'd open, you'd open the box and go, "Oh my god!" I open the box and go, "Oh my god!" But that's the that's the stuff they fish with. I I think Greg's favorite uh, favorite winter fly was like a you know a three zero Queen of Autumn. You can look that up, mm-hmm. um, or a Gordon. You know, fully dressed, just gorgeous thing. And I watched, you know, I've watched him catch, you know. I'll go behind him with, you know, a sculpin and, and I watch him, you know, catch a, a winter run, um, on that flies. So yeah, he was, and they were very dedicated to not just tying flies, but, um, you know, evolving the practice into their steelhead flies.
1: Gotcha. So so they weren't fishing. So if you get in that time after those guys at the, the Atlantic salmon guild, you know out there fishing they they weren't just fishing a sky comish sunrise anymore they were fishing these bigger beautiful things with lots more materials longer you know kind of a, a lot different than say what you'd fish in the 70s yeah
0: absolutely you know the reason i started out talking about Sid Glasso is because his patterns you know the quillute and the sole duck and yeah the orange heron, um you know, those are all derivative of traditional spay flies, um, and while and, and uh, yeah, certain a certain amount of time was dedicated in our meetings to fly tying demonstrations. And each one of us who was fishing these flies would do a demonstration of the kinds of flies that we were fishing. And I was tying a lot of D flies at the time, both traditional and flies of my own construction. Hence, you know, the name dependable. Um, huh. Greg had a number of patterns that were in Helby's book. I mean, I could go grab the book now and tell you what they are.
1: What's the D what, can you explain what a D fly is and how that's different from a typical spay fly or anything else?
0: Well, you know, I can tell you based upon, um, my recollection right now. Um, if I were talking to some Atlantic salmon fly, uh, you know, Gurus. um, devotee, I'd have to talk about it differently. Um, But basically, it's a long shanked fly with a sparse body made usually of, you know, wool, pig's wool or some other type of wool, um, usually with a wide tinsel, often with a a tail of uh, golden pheasant breast feather, um, and then hackled usually from the third rib forward um with heron and then um a throat of teal and then often there were eyes on the fly jungle cock eyes that went down so they went on the underside on the hook end of the fly and then the wings were uh strip wings they were um and when i say strip wings they were narrow strips of generally turkey in various different colors from silver turkey to you know oak turkey to you know regular brown turkey and um they were the 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 wings on a d-fly instead of flipped over like you see you know with that that typical classic shape you know with the, the very end of the of the hackle tips going up on a perfectly tinted uh, feather wing they were They were applied in the opposite direction so that these thin strips of turkey rested along the top of the body. And I think, you know, so when you go full circle and you look at this and you think about, well, what does that fly look like when it's in the water? Well, it has a dark back and an iridescent core and then, you know, a gray belly. To me, that looks like a minnow, you know, so then the next evolution of, okay. This is why that fly worked, you know? So having those sorts of conversations and then evolving the flies even further. Okay. You know, if this is a minnow pattern, you know, how do we use these other materials to take it to the next place? And, um, so that's, yeah.
1: um, that, that's a little a uh, good. And there's plenty of, I'm sure information out there. If somebody wants to dig in, what, is there a good book on Doesn't Shuey have one on spay flies and deflies?
0: He, he does. He does have a book on spay flies and d flies. I, um, you know, and I think that um, there is another book written by Buckland and Oglesby um, that shows classic flies of the era. And I think that's really important to look at because it shows what the guys were fishing with 100, you know, 100 years ago.
1: That's the interesting thing about this conversation, because for me, not being a historian, but just looking back on it, it seems like, you know, when you look at the history, we've talked a little, you know, I had Trey Combs on way back in episode, I think, number five, right? I think we're on episode 140 right now. So that was a long time ago. But, you know, I mean, he was there the early days and tying some of those flies, which were kind of based on some Atlantic salmon, but really kind of trouty too. So so you kind of had that, oh, yeah. right? You had that period. So you had, so you had Trey coming in doing that, bringing all those flies together. And then that was a big period in the seventies or whatever, 60s, 70s. And then the next big period, sounds like this, where you're talking about, where they were starting to get into Sig Glasso area. And, and, and then you get into this next phase of you know, really it goes with the spay, right? The, the spay rods are coming in and, and now we've got Northwest spay in the nineties. And then all of a sudden you get into this intruder thing. Is, is that kind of how you see it uh, as far as that his, historical piece?
0: Well, you know, so the answer is, is yes. And no. Yeah. <laughs> this, what, what did I
1: miss there? What in, That in, one well, minute. It, well,
0: well, because – so so, um, I was – you know, I've been fortunate to spend a fair amount of time, you know, on the river with Harry and Bob Strobel. And, uh, you know, I did um, – I had a long conversation with Harry shortly before he died on the phone, and we talked about a number of things. And in, in that conversation, he said to me that he um, went – to england well i mean we talked about it in the past but in that conversation he sort of gave me dates and he said that in 1985 the winter of 1985 he went to um england with peter mcveigh the the great rod maker from um merritt british columbia and he he being peter was a chef and he had a lodge up there at corbett lake and uh, entertained people and he and harry were were great friends. You'd see them on the the often. And Harry went to um they were at some, you know, establishment in Scotland and they ran into this gentleman who was uh the owner of uh the lease at Carrington, which is where, you know, Arthur Wood figured out the whole grease line mm. yep. thing. And Harry was saying, well, you know, I've always had this dream to Fisher Grant's vibration out on that piece of water, so he, you know this gentleman starts talking to Harry and Peter about the rod and the, the whole concept behind, you know, the Grant rods and that they had a regressive taper, etc. And um, Harry said that uh, he um, he and Peter and Peter recounted the story too. I was I ran into Peter on the Thompson one day and we were talking about it. Um. And apparently, they drove up to the driveway and it had snowed that day, and they were in a rental car and they couldn't get down to Carrington. Hmm. So he didn't get the opportunity to do this. But he later saw Grant's Vibration in London or something um, when they were getting ready to come home. And he, and um, so at, at the uh, annual um, outing for the Washington Steelhead Flyfishers, Jimmy Green was there, Jimmy was a member, and Jimmy had a rod. um, And he and he, being Jimmy and Bob Strobel, were working on some double-handed rods to help Joanne, Bob's wife Cass, who had had hurt hurt herself. Um, So she needed a double-handed rod to fish. So they were playing around with this rod, and then Harry Harry steps out to try it. And they have this conversation about this concept of a regressive taper. So uh, Jimmy just cuts the butt section off the rod, ticks, uh, cuts a little bit of the tip off, and sticks it into the butt section, and then tapes it up. And they start casting this rod, and they're like, "Wow, this this works!" So several, you know, and then eventually it broke. So they they hmm. ended up f- producing some prototypes.
1: What year was that? When he
0: cut now it? this, according to Harry, it was 1985 this is this is my understanding it was 1985 that 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 took place the winter of 85 so this would have been you know so if he was there in january or february you know 80 85 86 this probably would have been um spring of 1986 and um that they were you know at uh, howard miller steelhead park
1: how old was harry lemire at, at that time in 85 I think he was born in 1935. Yeah, 35. Okay. So yeah, he was in his So yeah, he's about you you around your age, maybe a little younger than you are now.
0: Yeah, maybe. And so I know that when I showed up on the Skagit and I was talking to Bob in 19, you know, 88, that's 3 years later. And they were doing all of the prototype work for what would become, you know, the famous Rod that changed it all—the ninety, the ninety-one forty—and um, I, you know, at the same time, you know, there were other people in the area that were friends with Jimmy Green that were um, receiving prototypes. John Ferrar was getting them. Jim Honeycutt was getting them. Cliff Barker was getting them.
1: How was that ninety-one forty different from your uh, Spay rods back in in that they're using in uh, in, uh, in Europe at the time? Well, uh, so all right, we don't have to dig way into all the, you know. Um, I'm just kind of well, curious, spay, just generally. Yeah.
0: So the spay rod
1: was, I mean, like you
0: know, you've seen this big movement in spay rods made out of gra- of uh, bamboo, and they're spliced, right? And they tape the splices together. So rods that were really ideally suited for spay casting were rods that were spliced because the ferrules tended to want to, you know, tended to break against whether it was green heart as the rod material or bamboo. So splicing was the way to go. And, um, you know, the mass of the rods, the limitations of the material as you get larger and larger, make the rods slower unless they're, you know, disproportionately, you know, large at the butt section. So, um, you know, my experience and I bought, you know, at the time I bought Grant's Vibrations. I bought sharps. I bought other Greenheart rods just to test. And then I had, you know, Harry gave me the prototypes that they had played around with, and I cast them side by side. You know, this is 30 years ago. I still have the, I don't have the prototypes, um, but I, I still have the, I still have the green heart rods. Mm. So the main difference was the weight yeah. and the tip weight in particular, you know, the tip weight on the graphite rods is much finer, you know, and as, and I, I think the other thing that's um, important to note is, you know, the first time. I saw Harry fishing a double-handed rod was probably 1988, 89, you know, early 89, winter of, you know, I mean, spring of 89, winter of 88, you know, fall of 88. And they were already using shooting heads. You know, there, there was no, you know, the, the, the whole concept of the, of the double taper was gone. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he and Bob, And, you know, I think if you want to talk to somebody who would know the history and the exact dates of all of this stuff, you'd need to talk to Al Burr. He knows, you know, he was, he was there and uh, he knows it, you know,
1: I mean. I'll I'll get, uh, yeah, I think I might've ran into Al at one of the, one of the expos. Um, But uh, yeah, so yeah, there's definitely some history. We're not going to cover every single piece, but it sounds like that's the big piece that you're covering there is that. You know, when you talk about fly design, really, um Harry and Bob and those guys were getting right. those first spay rods, which eventually that ninety one forty is the rod that um you know the deck and everybody else, um I mean all those guys talk about and that came into when Rio started making their everything they were doing for fly lines, right? Which was now we're in now we're into the nineties. Now we're into the nineties and fly design when, when did fly design take a big turn? But I, I think I think
0: fly design started to take a turn when the spay flies that um, Sid Glasso tied appeared in Traycomb's book.
1: That's what I was going to say about Sid Glasso. I mean, he seems to be the one, if I if I think of one name, I mean, Harry is obviously a huge name, um, but when I think of fly flies, it's like Sid's name comes up first. What, what was his, I mean, how long was he tying those unique? Uh, you know that stuff i mean was he you know was he tying that for back in the 70s and or and earlier right didn't he uh, maybe talk about sid's history a little bit
0: well if you're going to talk i mean the guy to talk to about sid's history would be um the guy who's writing the book on sid glass right oh now, that's right sid, yeah sid
1: who, McNe- who i have actually yeah. mcneese just <laughs> just called uh just call me. Uh, you called me yesterday, so I need to get back to Vic Dees because I, that's what we're talking about, uh, Dave. I want to get him on and, and chat about. Yeah, so Sid. I,
0: I, I'm supposed to write a section for Dave about uh, Sid and the Washington Steelhead Fly Fishers, which I promised I will do for his book. Um, so now I'm saying now I'm saying it live. I have
1: yeah, to yeah. Do well, this it. is awesome. The, the cool thing about this is that this is why I love the podcast. You know, the, the conversations because. Th- that's kind of how I've done this whole thing. I've started on one spot. And then as I talk to people, it just opens up all these other, you know, ideas <laughs> and options. And I'm, and, you know, part of the document of the history, I, I get into a lot of tips and tricks and things too. People love that, but I love also the history, right? That's why this, this episode is so powerful. And even though we're not going in deep on Sid, you know, just touching the surface is uh is pretty awesome. Yeah. So can you take us, I mean, if we're going to start to wrap this thing up, I mean, talk about what didn't we cover here from, from the perspective of a historical steelhead fly design. And what do you want to cover before we get out of here?
0: Well, you know, you could just keep asking me questions. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's tons, there's just tons of stuff. Um,
1: Were you part of, tell me about, I mean, we've talked about, um, You know, the OPST, I've got uh, some of those folks, hopefully they'll be on soon, um, you know, to talk about, I mean, there's one guy out there that's, I think, pretty much almost impossible to get on, uh, to get on a podcast. Um, uh, Who's the, who's the, uh, well, I got Jerry French coming on, but who's his, the counterpart back in in that? Ed Ed Ward. So Ed Ward's the guy who's impossible to get on a show. Uh, for some reason, but, um, I've got Jerry French coming on. He's going to talk all about, we're going to dig into what they did in that period. But is that the next thing that, that you, and were you part of that at all in that period?
0: Yeah. I mean, so, so, uh, the, at the time, you know, there were guys who were devoted to the gadget and devoted to, you know, figuring out how to fish this gadget effectively and in i think 1991 i became the importer for bruce and walker rods and i was a horrible importer you know um but you know i i I sold double-handed rods here in the united states because spay rods didn't really exist so at the time you know um anything spay was really connected to the spay and uh so i was the importer i had rods at different stores and um you know, they were just out-competed by, by Sage and the local rod makers, and that's, that's the way it went. But, you know, at the same time, I had a cabin on this gadget um, from, oh, I guess, 90 to 94. And, um, you, know, bef- you know, before this whole thing blew up, you know, I, Ed and I and, and Deck and Scott would run each, into each other regularly. And, uh, I was the first person to invite Ed to a Washington steelhead fly fishing meeting where he eventually became a member and, uh, that's where he met Marlo Bumpus. So, you know, we were, I would say that we, you know, we were all respected friends on the river who left each other alone. You know, we were all, we were all young guys around the same age trying to figure it out. And, uh, you know. Um, The thing that was consistent, regardless of whether it was Ed or me or Jerry, was, you know, this desire to fish something bigger because the river was so big and we wanted to increase the likelihood that a fish would see our offering. So you increase the size, but now you have to control it, you have to get it to the right depth. And what came out of the desire to increase the fly size and get it to ride well was the shank. And I talk about that in this article and I talk about, you know, that was uh Ed and Jerry doing that, developing that. And then, you know, you need to increase in, which the in which
1: article? In which article
0: in the last winter's article about big flies on the yeah. cat, You know, it's called Big Flies. And you know, that's all, you know, evolved, progressed by by Ed. And yeah, I mean I, I guess it's the, the transition is like, like nineteen eighty nine to nineteen ninety. You know, when I first um, showed up, um, well, I guess about a year after I showed up, I saw Ed, instead of fishing a single-handed rod, he had a double-handed rod. He was using um, an Orvis double-handed rod with a 11-weight double taper and a sink tip. And uh, one of his favorite flies was this small black um, nymph, and you know we were all we'd all congregate on the mixer and fish through and uh, invariably you know ed would go through after everybody else with one of those little black flies on his double-handed rod and catch a you know a, a steelhead and within a couple of years you know the 9140 was out and deck was going through the pool with his 9140 and you know i remember you know we were it, it just took off from there and so whenever and I and he had he had a 9140 I believe with a few other select people before it hit the market like the and I don't know whether right. it was a few I don't know whether it was a few months before or a year before and then the rods that Strobel and Lemire were using where were 9140 prototypes and they had them before that. You know, gotcha. A year or two before that. What, what was so, that
1: little? What was that little black fight? So that wasn't the, the, an intruder. That
0: was not an intruder. No. And then, and then, I remember one day, and I wrote about this. You know, um, Ed showed up at the cabin, and this was in like the, this is like '94, spring of '94, and he sits down and um, he opens up his box and he shows me all this stuff. Because we were having these conversations about, you know, all right, what's in the river? You know, what is it that the fish see when they're in the river that's big, that won't scare them, but elicit the strike response? So we talked about lampreys, we talked about sculpins, we talked about the big things that were in there. And then what is the carryover from the saltwater that, um, you know, the fish are going to remember when they move upstream? And hence, you know, the whole, the whole intruder concept and you know the thing that you really see with you know what Jerry and Ed did was that they did take Atlantic salmon fly tying techniques and you know completely you you know completely reinvent their use if that makes sense you know so they would they would take primary or tail feathers of um, and this is routine now of uh, Amherst pheasant you know the banded white and black pheasant yeah. they would dye them they would strip the feathers and then they would, you know, take those. So in other words, when you strip the feather, you, the flues of the feather remain connected to the stem, which is now split. And then you can wrap that. So now you have these, these flies that had um, bodies of SLF that were thin, um, thinly dressed, but picked out. So they were super translucent. They gave a sense of, of mass, yet they were not heavy. And then um, you know, they had barbell eyes on the front so that they would remain, you know, they would fish mm-hmm. in the correct right. orientation and that was it, you know? Um, so, you know, while that was going on, I wrote, I wrote an article for, um, you know, for, uh, swing the fly where I talk about, um, uniform sink lines that I was playing with. So while they were doing that, I was playing with, with other lines and now now the whole scandy thing has become really connected to to that but the thing that was going on was this realization that you know you needed to have something that was density compensated and you needed to be able to turn over the fly and there was a couple of ways to do it you know one way was what became the most popular thing which is using a very large belly to turn over a very short very heavy sink tip with a weighted yeah. fly so successively heavier material the other way is to make your line successively heavier, and the fly buoyant so it doesn't hang up on the bottom. Which is sure. the direction I went with.
1: Which so. is more of the, which is more of these I guess uh, I don't know if that's scammy. Klaus uh, Freemore was on and he talked about. Uh, he talked about underhand casting, and we got into some of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, and you're asking me about flies, and 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 the thing I, the thing that I, um, have to always align it to is. You know, a lot of people tie flies because they like to tie beautiful things, right? They like to have these beautiful things in their box and they look at them and they are seduced by what's in their box. Yeah. And then the fisherman, you know, who's purely thinking about, okay, how do I trick the fish? Maybe not necessarily catch the fish, but how do I trick the fish? What do I need to do, you know? And and that sometimes informs a very different looking fly box. And um, And I'd like to think that I've been able to be um, unbiased enough to see both sides of that. And that, cause that's what I, so if there's anything that I've been able to write about, it's, you know, sort of that that crossover between both forms of the art, if that makes if that makes any sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think is, um, you know, when you look at back at the history of, you know, we've been talking about steelhead fly design Here, uh, what do you think is the biggest, the biggest change in that in that whole history? Go back to the '60s or '50s or whatever.
0: If I were to think about the biggest change in fly design from the '60s to the present, yeah, in steelhead fishing, um, it's it, it has to be the Intruder. It has to be, but you know, and 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 you can, you can ask jerry this but i think the thing that's most important about the true intruder is not the intruder pattern itself but the invention of the the shank that allows you to tie intruders and and you know and it's like anything else um that takes a while to gain favor um you know, when you, f- when you realize that it's okay to tie a fly that's six inches long and now you can tie it so that it's easy to cast and fish. And then you see that it's successful. Well, then all of a sudden everybody starts to do that, right. Cause they want to be successful.
1: If I had to direct, if I had to go to one thing right now or direct somebody to one thing that, you know, that you really feel like it's something that represents what you're all about or it doesn't have to be writing just it could be anything in your your life as well you have to
0: come up with an idea and you you have to realize the idea and then you have to make it to the best of your ability and then you have to let it go and i have made a lot of things in my life and once they go out the door i don't think about them and i know that that might sound horrible you know so like if i make if it's almost like I don't even need to be paid for what I do. And that's really not true, (laughs) but that's sort of how I look at it. You
1: you mean you don't review it? You don't like look what
0: I do review it until it goes out. And then once it leaves six years or 10 years later, I walk into somebody's home, a collector's home and go, Oh my God, I made that. And then I wake up, I'm I'm awoken by what I've done. I'm not consciously thinking about it. So if I were to say any, you know, what, any anything that I've written in, in the last three years that's been in FTJ or Swing the Fly is very current, and and you know um, of of all you know it, so it gives you a really good insight into who I am and where I'm coming from, um, but I I would say that as you know again as somebody who is spends your life um, as a creative. I'm constantly moving my ideas and my ability to translate them forward. So they I'm always getting better at it. So what's my favorite piece would be the next one, you know? So, so you should read next month's issue or two months issue of, you know, of FTJ with the article about, you know, about uh, deck Hogan and, and, um, Oh, it's awesome. And Marty Howard and uh, Greg Hunt. And there'll be some of this story in there and some of how things progressed and how, you know, how the Northwest Atlantic salmon fly guild influenced people way outside of the Pacific perfect. Northwest. So, perfect. so that's how I would wrap it up. Awesome.
1: Awesome. And I, that's perfect. BI, yeah, because FTJ is actually a, currently a sponsor of this podcast. So I love that. Yeah. You know, we threw that out to wrap this up. Hey, so is that if you had to say the, you know, the best resource, if somebody wanted to dig more into the history of like, we've been talking here today, is, is that it? Or is there another resource you'd send them to? Oh. If you were to go to my
0: website, um, there's a, a CV on my website, and all the publications that I've been in, films that I've been in, um, and things that have been written about me, or whatnot, uh, and things that I've written are are there. So you, can, you can go there.
1: Okay, and, and that's, find
0: there's a bibliography right. there, and you can and you can find you know you can find things.
1: So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we cover, just go to flyswing.com slash 136. A reminder, uh, the new podcast is out and it's going. I'd love it if you could click over and have a listen at outdoorsonline.co. Uh, it would mean a lot to me if you could just, uh, click play and, uh, listen on your app of choice or even at the website. Uh, Uh, appreciate you stopping in today and and helping out. Uh, I want to thank you again for uh, coming by and hope to maybe see you on the river or online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.